Goldie and Bendy. Hello and welcome. Because yes, yes, we're back with a new season of Waldy and Bendy's Adventures in Art. The podcast they could not stop. Come the lockdown, come the podcast. Now, I'm still Valdemar Ustrak, art critic of the Sunday Times, still Waldy to my friends, and I'm joined yet again by a man with more identities than Tom Cruise in the Mission Impossible films. Sometimes he's an art dealer. Sometimes he's an art historian. Sometimes he's a TV giant. But all the time, he's lovable and cuddly. His mum christened him Bendor Grosvenor, but the world today knows him as Bendy, our Bendy. So, Bendy, how goes it up there in Scotland? Oh, very good, thanks. I'm a little bit cold today. I'm up in the attic where we have our little recording studio, and it's quite, it's quite chilly. Snow on the ground, snow on the roof. So if my teeth start chattering, I must apologise. But uh, poor you, Hardy, you're always so kind to me, and you can't shake me off. Every time you open your laptop and turn on the Zoom, there I am, grinning away at you, demanding that we talk about art. That's right, yes. I, do you know what? You're lucky with the snow, though. There isn't any down here in, in London. It's just a bit slushy. Um, but I like the idea of your teeth chattering. Um, you've got lovely teeth, <laughs> I, I, and I enjoy the sound of them going chatter, 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 chatter. So let's hear more of that right now, because we've got a special podcast for you today, devoted mostly to the sometimes prickly subject of restoration. Restoring and repairing old pictures. Do we sometimes repair and restore them? too much that's the question and i'll be asking it to the restoration maestro at the national gallery in london so that's coming up plus bendy's chosen an incredibly obscure painting for his on the wall that's on the way as well and don't forget if you go to our podcast website at zczfilms.com you can see every picture we talk about they're all there in full color waiting to be examined but first a new section of the podcast. You must have noticed that there seems to be a lot of news going on in the world at the moment. And where there's news, there's Waldy and Bendy. It's shocking news from the art world. So Bendy, a new section, shocking news from the art world. Now, it's been prompted by events at Buckingham Palace. Listeners, you'll remember that a couple of podcasts ago, Bendy announced that the job he'd most like in the world was to be surveyor of the Queen's pictures, looking after the Royal Collection. But now suddenly, he can't be that anymore. The job's been plucked away from him. What happened, Bendy? Well, I was wondering how we could ever top having celebrity superstar guest Steve Martin on the podcast. And it turns out that we can be that because one of our listeners must be, in fact, Her Majesty the Queen, uh, because that can be the only explanation for the fact that uh, in the week after we had recorded our Royal Collection episode, in which I declared my fantastical intention to one day be Queen Surveyor of Pictures, uh, the post was abolished. There will be no more Queen Surveyor of Pictures. This is uh, due, they say, to COVID-related budget pressures uh, on the Royal Collection. And in order to save some cash, um, they've put the post of the Queen Surveyor of Pictures into what they call abeyance, which is a marvellously royal way of saying hmm. they've made the post redundant. So Desmond Shaw Taylor, who's the current holder of the, the post, which goes all the way back to 1625, Raleigh, can you believe it? 
will be the last one, at least for now, and at least until you and I launch our palace putsch. You become king, <laughs> and I will become your surveyor of pictures. Storm Buckingham Palace. More of that later, yes. But as you say, it's, it goes back to 1625. I mean, that is such a lot of history to chuck out, isn't it? Um, I mean, the, it's been such an important role in the past. The first surveyor of the Queen's pictures, or the King's pictures at the time, Abraham van der Dort, put together what is basically the first catalogue of great art in British history. Yeah. Um, and that's why we know all those fantastic pictures that were here in the time of Charles I, before they were dispersed after the Civil War. And then all these other surveyors of the Queen's pictures who come along afterwards, they've all had such important jobs to do, and they've been such big players in British culture, even the bad ones. I mean, everybody knows Anthony Blunt as a spy. They forget, of course, that he was also the surveyor of the Queen's pictures. So it's an incredibly important job, and you would have thought a really, really significant one. Um, I just can't see how the royal collection is going to survive without a surveyor surveying it. Yes, it is. It's difficult to work out the logic behind it in a sort of historical sense. I mean, you mentioned Anthony Blunt. Uh, the interesting thing about him is he was able to carry on being a Queen's Surveyor of Pictures even after everybody knew that he'd uh, confessed to being a spy and a traitor. So uh, COVID has somehow done for the post of Surveyor of the Queen's Pictures what treason and uh, and treachery could not. It's it's quite something. Um, you mentioned mm -hmm. Abraham van der Dort, and, and perhaps this is where the tragedy of the position of Queen's Surveyor of Pictures comes in. Because did you know he ended up taking his own life uh, because he thought that he'd misplaced one of the king's pictures, a little miniature portrait. And even more tragically, uh, they found it in some drawer after he, he died. So he hadn't actually lost it. But anyway, so there we are. COVID um, ends the reign of the Queen's Surveyor of Pictures. And uh, it began with Abraham van der Dort in 1625, all those years ago. Now, do you know who painted Abraham van der Dort? Well, that's an interesting question, Waldi, because uh, the books say William Dobson, and I know you're going to say they William do. Dobson. They do. But uh, although I bow down to your connoisseur sense, because you've seen the painting, which is in the Hermitage yes. in St. Petersburg. Exactly, it's in Russia. I've only seen it from photographs. So I, I don't know. I'm not. I'm not entirely sure that it is by Dobson. Well, it's not a typical Dobson, that's for sure. And as you say, it's in Russia now in the Hermitage. I've seen it and filmed it. Um, and it's a sort of shaggy Abraham van der Dort with beard and grey hair, looking almost a touch Rembrandt-y. So not, not a very William Dobson-like picture. But had it happened, it would have been very early on in his career. The Dobson worked for, for van der Dort, apparently, and helped him in some of designing some of the tapestries and things at Mortlake. So they were intimately connected at some point. It wouldn't surprise me if 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 it did turn out to be wrong. But then on the other hand, you know, we know so little about Dobson that any bits of his career that are obscure today could be full of revelations. So I just don't know. Um, it, it's not obviously by him, but it, it's an obvious and strong connection. And anybody that um, harms Abraham van der Dort or Abraham van der Dort's job as surveyor of the Queens of King's pictures, that person harms my memories of William Dobson. So I'm against, I'm against the stopping of the job, that's for sure. Hmm. We'll have to see what we can do. Another campaign for us, Waldi. Yeah. Now, see, the other thing that's happening in the news, we've all been watching the invasion of the Capitol building, haven't we, in Washington this week, and these ridiculous and, and tragic and, and really, really depressing events um, in America. 
I don't know about you, but when I was watching the footage of the loonies uh, rampaging through the Capitol building, one of the things that really struck me was the art on the walls. Mm. Um, I don't know if you've ever done that tour of the Capitol building. That You can go on a tour. Well, you used to be able to go on a tour of all the um, buildings, all the art there, if, if you turned up and, and booked a ticket. And I've been on it a couple of times, actually. And, of course, it is stuffed with fascinating art. Not necessarily great art, but definitely really interesting art. And it's art that seems to resonate very strongly with these big ideas that are at play here, ideas of democracy and America's past and America's future. It's all up there on the walls in these suite of pictures that hang, particularly in that central rotunda. There's these statues of all the presidents as well in a ring around it. Um, and as somebody pointed out on Twitter, you know, you've got all this interesting history around you. But did you notice how when the loonies were rampaging through the Capitol Rotunda, very few of them actually went beyond the purple rope that, that, that marked the normal passage of people through there? You know, when you go on the tour, you go down this sort of corridor lined with a purple rope and that you're not supposed to step over it. And it's quite interesting that none of them did. And as somebody said, it's, like, it's almost like a testimony of the power of the purple rope. Yeah. Were you struck by the art? Did you notice it in those, in those newsreel I did. Um, I have been on the tour a long time ago when I was just a boy. And I noticed on the footage that that moment when everybody, the loonies, as you call them, filed neatly through the, the guardrails. And thank God they didn't step over them, because uh, what tends to happen in these sort of uh, revolutionary moments is that the crowd can get very whipped up in their destructive fervor. And the art tends to bear the brunt of that, doesn't it? I mean, all exactly. sorts of stories about paintings being uh, torn down and burnt in various revolutions in France and Russia and what have you. Thank goodness uh, this one was just consigned to a few loonies wanting to take selfies in Nancy Pelosi's chair. Although I saw on the news that some people did actually die very tragically in those uh, horrible events, uh, for which, of course, we can only blame one person, and his name begins with T. Mm. Now, there isn't a statue to him in there yet. Hopefully, there never will be. But there are these other interesting statues in that central rotunda. And the one that I remember best really struck me at the time. And it's actually the, the statue of Abraham Lincoln that's in there. You saw it a couple of times in the corner when the loonies are rushing past. Um, and it's Lincoln and he's, and he's holding the, you know, the proclamation of emancipation in his hand, which is the, the emancipation that said that all men are free in America now, basically the, the freeing of the slaves. And the really fascinating thing about it, I don't know if you know this, but it was made by an artist called Vinnie Ream. So that was her name, Vinnie Ream in 1871. And she was 18 years old. It's a fascinating story. I mean, it'd make a great documentary, actually. So there was this young girl who had met Lincoln basically through her connections in the post office, because, you know, he used to work for the post office in America. And she met him through that, and she made a bust of him over the years. And she was very young, just starting out in her trade. But she had made this bust of him. So when they decided to put a statue up to him later, they asked her to put in a suggestion. And she put in a suggestion, and they chose her. It took her a few years to make it. It was finally unveiled in 1871. But it's a noble thing. It's a rather a wonderful statue. And, and you just wonder, I mean, for somebody so young to be entrusted with this task, not only that, but a woman, to actually be responsible for the great statue of Abraham Lincoln in the Capitol building, in the rotunda. I mean, that's amazing, isn't it? And I just feel it was, it was something, first of all, that should be noted more often, but also that seemed to be playing out in the background, if you like, of, this, mm. of these extraordinary scenes this week. Yes. Oh, I didn't know that. Goodness, mm. and if only those, some of those statues could have talked yesterday. The pictures that I, of course, saw on the telly were the huge ones, the ones you couldn't miss. Uh, many of them in the rotunda uh, by John Trumbull. 
who was an artist uh, who was commissioned to paint them in 1817. And actually, I know a little bit about him, Waldo, because I discovered a little portrait by him some years ago. The sitter was called William West, who was uh, Benjamin West, the artist's brother. Now, Trumbull is a, a very didn't, interesting... Didn't Trumbull study under Benjamin West? I mean, he came to England, didn't he? And... Yes, he did. Did he so, study under Benjamin West? I thought he had. Yeah, yeah, he's the he's the most extraordinary person, Trumbull. He always wanted to be an artist, but his dad, who was a, a politician, he was governor of Connecticut, uh, refused to let him and made him go to Harvard in in order to become either a priest or a lawyer. I um, mean, his dad also said, "Well, you're blind in one eye," which he was. So difficult for you to be a painter. But Trumbull was determined. Um, and after a spell in the U.S. Revolutionary Army. Uh, where incidentally he honed some of his art skills doing little sketches of British fortifications at places like Boston. He came to Britain to study, as you say, under Benjamin West. And one of the little things he took with him was a portrait of William West, his brother, to sort of show what he could do and as a token of friendship. At the time, of course, um, America and Britain, the relations were not great. And uh, poor old Trumbull, he was arrested for treason. Um, and he was deported back to the States, but uh, this didn't stop him. And he was so determined to become an artist that he, he came back to Britain to finish his studies with West and ended up being commissioned to paint these four enormous tableaus, uh, pictures of the Declaration of Independence and so on, which are now in the capital, and which happily uh, the loonies walked merrily past and ignored yesterday. Mm. It's a shame pictures can't talk because you can just imagine George Washington himself who appears in in the most famous of those pictures, isn't it, where, where he's actually handing over the Declaration of Independence. Um, you know, this is like the, the great document of the American Constitution, how every man has a right to happiness and freedom, you know, yeah. handing it over. Um, and, and then the other one, the other great picture there is, is at the other end of George Washington's story where he stops being a general and leader of the American forces fighting the British and decides to become a civilian again and so it's always held to be this symbolic image this this image of um george washington resigning his commission is a kind of image that exemplifies the idea of the american wars of independence finishing and this great era of democracy and freedom looming up before them so i mean this is really powerful symbolic stuff up there on the walls i don't, I don't think it's great art but i mean it, it's certainly potent art and there was just something terribly ironic as well as sad about these events taking place in front of that art. I mean, it, it, it broke me up, I must say. It made me very, very thoughtful for the evening, as well as, of course, as all the other tragic things that happened there and the shootings and all the rest. Yes, well, that, 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 that painting you mentioned is one of Trumbull's four paintings there. And um, the whole point of that moment is, is Washington laying down the powers of the military, the powers of force and violence in order to take up the civilian uh, powers of president. And that's something that, uh, you know, Trump absolutely came up hard against yesterday when he sent his own little tin pot army into the Capitol. But there is some artistic good news from the end of Trump's uh, period in office. I don't, have you come across this fellow who calls himself America's artist? Uh, his name is John McNaughton. Um, no, not that one. I don't know. I, he I, paints I, I, no. Well, you might have seen some of his paintings. They aspire to be like Trumbull's paintings in the Capitol, sort of tableaus of American history. Uh, but they're truly execrable. Uh, and <laughs> they, they celebrate and eulogize Trump and sort of raise him up to be a, a you know, sort of a biblical saint-like figure. And his most recent one um, is Pray for the President, uh, which was painted a terrible portrait of Trump after he got COVID. Um, people uh, who support Trump uh, buy quite a lot of this stuff. It, it sells like hotcakes. And another of his most recent ones, you can see them on the website. We'll put a link to, up to it on 
zzzfilms.com is um, a picture of uh, Trump on Mount Rushmore. And McNaughton says, uh, this painting is of President Trump after he's added to Mount Rushmore, a true champion of America. I always like to find silver linings in things, mm-hmm. Wally. Um, and happily, after yesterday's nadir of Trumpism, I think we can be absolutely sure that Trump will never disgrace Mount Rushmore. Yeah, I think we can be sure of that. Um, I'm less sure if we can look forward very positively to, to America's future. Well, we'll see. Listen, um, this is a story that is still to unfold, I think. It's probably a good place to finish uh, our first shocking news in the art world section uh, and to move on. Perhaps to, to another subject that um, seems to divide and stimulate opinion in the art world, and that's restoration, looking after and repairing old pictures. Now, there's been some big restorations recently, notably the great Van Eyck in Ghent, the altarpiece of the Mystic Lamb in Ghent Cathedral. It's been the subject of a hugely ambitious cleaning that's taken many years. To talk about it, I've gone to the very top, to the best man in the country that I could think of, and that's the the head restorer at the National Gallery, Larry Keith. Now, the last time I saw him, he was working on Artemisia Gentileschi's fabulous self-portrait of St. Catherine for the big Artemisia show that we've all been loving. And seeing it in the flesh in his restoration studio, so close up, was really memorable. At least, for me, it was. The Interview so Larry, we met once before um, when you were doing the Artemisia. You you still hadn't finished that. That must have been an exciting task. Yeah, that's right. I think I don't remember exactly where we were in that treatment um, when you came in. If I'd started or, or you were quite a long way along, okay. uh, but there didn't seem to be too much to do. I got the feeling it was, in restoration terms, a, a relatively uncomplicated job. I think that's fair enough to say. But and of course, you can follow that restoration. It's the first time I think we'd made this series of short films going through all the aspects of what we did in terms of treatment and framing and decisions uh, and, and trying to describe the typical kind of collegial discussions we have across the institution. And they're all there on our website, so it's a nice thing to follow. Yeah, but as, as yeah. these things go, it was a very satisfying treatment because I think it was had a major visual impact, but it was, from a technical point of view, fairly straightforward, yeah. So, uh, yeah, these little films you make, they're wonderful. I've really enjoyed them. I enjoyed the Artemisia ones. And you've just done one on the Rubens that you've been cleaning. Am I right in thinking that was your last big job? Yeah, well, that's ongoing now. I, I, I'm retouching the work now. So that, that's the most recent one. But there are quite a few things. Uh, my colleague, Paul Ackroyd, has uh, done an extraordinary treatment of the big Van Dyke, Charles First on horseback. We've got something about our work on our earliest 13th century Italian panel painting, but Christina Mandy's working on the framing of that. That's just gone out online. It's worth rootling around the gallery website because I think there are lots of very interesting things to look at to give you a, a good idea of the kind of scope of the kind of work and also the kind of discussions and the context, which I think is really important to understand. Look, we're going to go on to the Charles I because um, my colleague on this podcast, Bendy, he's obsessed with Van Dyck and he'll, he'll love to hear all about that. But just to start with the Rubens, because I'm a Rubens man, you know, I'm, I'm mm. Rubens in size and Rubens in spirit. Um, but yeah. that, 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 <laughs> that landscape, wow, it's a tremendous painting. It's the view of, of the Chateau, the Hetstein that we've all grown to love at the National Gallery. It's Rubens' own house, isn't it? And, and his gardens, the lands outside. So it's a, it's a big, breathy, wonderful bit of Flemish landscape with great sky and lots of peasants everywhere but tell us about it it must have been quite a task well again it was one of those things where i think you know we know it so well sometimes you know the picture so well you you kind of don't look at it in the same way you almost get lazy about looking at it because we were thinking about 
assessing the panel's condition and we took it off the wall and off the frame and I was astounded. I mean, I've, I've looked at paintings with varnishes in various states of degradation for decades now and yet when I saw that picture off the wall out of the frame, I was astounded at just how discolored the varnish was. A really, really very yellowed and it made a marker that uh, we're contemplating the picture going on loan and it was going to go to an exhibition at the Wallace where it would be paired with the rainbow landscape which is in itself extremely exciting. And we made a note that, oh gosh, there's no time really to do anything with this work now. And uh, I guess the unattended silver lining of the pandemic meant that the delay in the exhibition caused by that has afforded the chance to do this work now. And um, it's totally thrilling because I think the transformation is amazing. Dramatic, I would say it's dramatic, yeah. I mean, yeah, because I guess the whole thing is predicated. I mean, it's such a, a personal kind of painting and it's so dramatic. and. And from a functional or sort of formal point of view, I think so much of it's predicated on the kind of golden uh, russet tones of the countryside and then this receding beautiful aerial perspective, that kind of blue sky and the play between yellow and white with the sun below the clouds illuminating them from below. All those things were just not so visible, those really fundamental things he set up with the color relationships, which you just couldn't see as he intended because of the discolored varnish. And so mm. they're, you're just unlocking what's there. It's really exciting. But what's interesting is that I always thought that when varnish gets discolored, it's because it's grown old and so it goes yellow and loses, it becomes darker. But in this instance, it looks like people actually painted it or plastered it with darker varnish to make it look different. Well, I think in this case, most of the, uh, the overwhelming majority of what you see in, in terms of the discoloration is just that, the natural aging and degradation of a natural resin varnish when exposed to ultraviolet light over decades. However, we do know that in the past, we even had a record of an earlier treatment where there had been an active kind of suppression of all those color differences with toned varnishes, um, which is pretty unusual, I think, to do it deliberately in that way. It's recorded in an earlier treatment record that they encountered what they believed to be locally tinted varnishes. And I guess it's that whole older idea about the golden glow and the uniform patina. And it's interesting then that you know, to that aesthetic, these kind of major uh, juxtapositions of cool and warm were just kind of upsetting in a way. They seemed jarring to that sensibility and they were actively suppressed. Yeah, there's that, that famous story, isn't there, about George Beaumont who was uh, associated with uh, the National Gallery and, uh, and Constable. And, and apparently Beaumont was moaning to Constable that um, his landscapes, Constable's landscapes were too green. Um, a proper landscape, he said, should be, should be brown and moody, um, like, a, like a violin. Um, Constable's repost was to take a violin and lay it down, lay it down in the grass. Yeah, I, I, there's another thing where he says, uh, "What is it? A good picture, like a good violin, should be brown." Yeah. <laughs> so some of that must have gone on. What interests me is, you know, I I make a lot of films about art, and one of the things that forces you to do is to really look at the pictures. You know, when you're filming through the camera, you really have to look at them. And I must say, for me, it's been a revelation time and time and time again. I've just understood artists differently by being that close to them. I mean, I hate to think how much it must be like that for you. You must feel as if you really can see some of these artists for the first time as they really were. It must be a very intimate process. Well, there is a certain intimacy, absolutely. And I guess it's that kind of, I don't know, it's like a virtual feeling of, I sometimes feel like some sort of plutocrat collector because I mean, I feel like a, I'm so close to the works. We all are, all conservators, when you work on the picture. You spend lots of quiet time in different moods, different lighting. You really get that sort of sense of what it must be like to have a painting in your house, I guess. But uh, it's true. It's not necessarily 
that we always understand how they looked originally because there is lots of irrevocable change in the materiality of a painting, but still it's true. I guess you see the, the hand, you know, the, the kind of brush strokes, the tracing of all those kinds of things, the build up, the changes, the differences in texture, all those kinds of things that we, we really get to revel in and kind of um, almost guilty pleasure in a way because it's so quiet and personal. I get the feeling restorers should be used to decide on whether something's really by an artist or not. You know, auction houses ought to pay you loads of money to authenticate pictures, shouldn't they? Because you must know better than anybody. I couldn't possibly comment. <laughs> um, but it's certainly true that the idea of spending time around objects and just lots of time, lots of time over years or decades, just around the materiality of things, you know, gives you a different perspective, whether you're a curator or a conservator, but clearly we, we spend more time than, than most doing that. And it's, it's one of those things I think it's interesting too, it's something I think about a lot now as we spend more and more time now, because we have to, looking at things online and how the experience of looking is different through a screen and the idea of paintings being essentially low limited, they're the kind of relief sculptures as well as images, you know, they have texture, they've got variation, they've got different gloss, all those things, and those things can't really be very easily conveyed on screens. And yet screens allow more people to see more paintings than ever before. They do interesting things too, that they make you, they I think are very good at looking closely, looking at detail, looking tight, uh, but that's not always looking well. Not, you know, it's, not, it's really interesting the way it changes what we think a picture is, I think. Another interesting thing is that restoration has become much more public. I mean, I've been in situations in the past where people wouldn't let me film something because it was being restored and they didn't want the public to know what it was really like, the state it was in. But that's all changed. I mean, you're always on YouTube now with your wonderful films about restoration. And, and in some instances, restoration has become like a public event, you know, the restoration of the Van Eyck in Ghent. Yeah, yeah. Or indeed, uh, the Van Eyck that the, my, my colleague Joel Dunkerton destroyed here. It's true. It's not something I would have predicted, like so many things 20 years ago, the demise of books or the, the publicity of restoration. It's certainly true. And I think it's all to the good. I think all the discussion around conservation is, is healthy because within the gallery itself, you know, our restorations are the fruit of collaborations and discussions between curators and scientists and uh, outside experts and various restorers as well and conservators. So why not widen that a bit further and make it more understood? I think the idea that an old master painting is a kind of you know, a tablet handed down like a received text that doesn't have these layers and centuries of different interpretations is something that it's very healthy to, to make people aware that you're looking at a history of a painting as well as a painting when you see it in a gallery. But Larry, we have to get also to the dark side of restoration. By that I mean, you don't need me to tell you that there have been these controversies about it. You must have been yourself in a position where you thought, shall I do this or shan't I do this? And in other cases, people have not just restored, in the eyes of the audience at least, they've, they've overpainted or repainted or done too much, or the usual one is they've taken off all the glazes. How do you feel about all that? I mean, you must feel, I suppose, vulnerable, or, or are you cocky about it? I, I, I hope I wouldn't be considered cocky about it, but I guess I think the interesting thing here, without going into too many details about particular treatments, I think we're we have a few ground rules. I mean, the idea of removing original artist material is something that uh, you know that no responsible conservator could ever countenance that. And I'd like to think that doesn't happen at a certain level of restoration. Nonetheless, uh, the treatments themselves, um, informed by science and arrived at by 
collegial discussions with experts, nonetheless, there is a subjective interpretive element in a restoration. There always has been, there always will be. And, and therein lies the room for discussion, debate, sometimes, in my view, misrepresentation, but there is no one way. That's why we find it, uh, I think most conservatives and uh, find uh, monographic exhibitions like a Rembrandt exhibition really fascinating for all sorts of reasons. Not only you see all the works by the painter assembled, but you see different conservation traditions, different material histories, different ideas about what a varnish is, how it should look, how much retouching a picture needs. And these are not universally agreed. And I guess the point is that the overwhelming majority of what we do now is something that is uh, provisional. It's removable, it's changeable. And so from that point of view, it's not irrevocable. Of course, cleaning something, when something's taken away, it's, it's taken away. But in terms of retouching and um, decisions about framing and varnishing, they, they can be revisited, of course, and they'd be naive to think they won't be in centuries to come. You're making restoration sound more like um, an art than a science. I, I think it's, it's it's certainly informed by science, very much so, more than ever. And we know more and more by, you know, and of course, working in a place like the National Gallery, we're in a very privileged position to have you know, world-class scientific department doing all sorts of extraordinary investigations that really help us understand more and more and more about our options, our choices in terms of what we do. Mm. Now, uh, we can't finish this without dealing with Bendy's favourite artist, Van Dyck. So it's a little bit about this magnificent and giant, it must have been such a huge job, the giant Charles I that's recently been uh, revealed by the National Gallery. That must have been a hell of a job. Yeah, well, that was led by my colleague, Paul Aykroyd, uh, and I think that was an extraordinary treatment for all sorts of reasons. First of all, I guess, looking at the front, the actual cleaning, this is a really interesting example, I think, that's often less well understood, that varnishes, when they degrade, they go yellow, of course, but the other thing they do is they, they go hazy, and they have a kind of fine, like, microscopic crackler, so it's effectively like looking through a a net curtain at a painting or, you know, looking, you know, more crudely at it, like through a shattered windscreen. So you get this kind of fogging and it means that the dark tones get um, lighter and the light tones get darker. So the whole modeling system gets suppressed. And that was the big change, I think, in the cleaning of the Van Dyke, is that the kind of these luscious, translucent, dark browns uh, and the modeling of the horse, the horse's flesh is just extraordinary now. It's sort of electric with these highlights and kind of glossy coat and, uh, and also the recession of the foreground, the way it moves back now, it doesn't tip up like a kind of Japanese print because of the foggy varnish. Um, and that was the big gain there. Uh, of course, the pictures of the varnish had yellowed, but I think the more profound transformation had to do with the restoration of the tonal values, and it's beautiful there. Well, we're nearly finished now, Larry. One, one final question. What's the hardest restoration you've done at the National Gallery? Oh... <laughs> I don't know. Gosh, that, that, that is a difficult one because they're so hard to compare. Some treatments might be about a very complex cleaning operation, knowing how to reduce a varnish with control. Others might be kind of heroic reconstructions of big damages where you might have to do a lot of that kind of retouching. Other ones where it might be just very sensitive things to unlock what's already there by knowing when to stop the retouching. I, I, I hesitate to answer that, I think, because they really are very, very different. Um, no, I, I couldn't really say. I mean, they all have their challenges and they all have their different rewards. I think I'm going to 
leave it at that, I think. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed that. Very interesting. We all await the time when uh, we can go back to the National Gallery and see these things again in the flesh. In the meantime, we've got your wonderful films to get by with. So thanks for that, Larry. Yes, and we're keeping on with those. So uh, there'll be more and more content in various social media uh, and film from all my colleagues across uh, the, the department. So do have a look at the website and keep an eye on our various social media accounts and watch this space, as we say. There you go, Bendy. What a nice man. That's the, the head restorer at the National Gallery, Larry Keith. Those films are terrific, aren't they? Have you managed to catch some of them, the ones he talks about? Oh, I'm a big Larry Keith fan. What a nice man. A tremendous restorer. We're very lucky to have him as head of conservation at the National Gallery. I have seen his most recent video of uh, cleaning Rubens's wonderful landscape of Hetstein. Um, and... Uh, it's marvellous that the National Gallery is embracing this openness about conservation. As you discussed in the interview, uh, it's quite a new thing, isn't it, for museums to be so open about uh, showing the cleaning process of pictures. Because in the past, uh, there's been a sort of reluctance to show the damage in art because people go, oh, that painting's in terrible state. But of course, we, we tend to forget that these things are four, five, six hundred years old and in far better shape than we are. Lovely man. I, I would love to sit there in the National Gallery Conservation Studio um, just listening to Larry uh, clean uh, as he cleans paintings. That would be a, a great treat. Mm. He didn't really go very far when I asked him if um, uh, about the dark side of restoration. But by that, all I mean is we all know that these things can be very, very controversial. I mean, you could, you could measure out the last 20 years in art world controversies when it comes to restoration. Where do you stand on it? Because I, 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 I go both ways. I think there have been restorations that have gone too far. And I think there are other restorations that have just been completely misunderstood. I think the, the, the one thing that is definite is that people have an idea of something because they've looked at it in a certain way. And then when it's cleaned up and it looks more like it used to look when it, when it, when it was first made, um, they're shocked by the, the newness of its appearance. And often it's a question not so much of, of a restoration ruining something as, as a restoration attacking people's memories of what they think they've seen. Um, is that something that you've encountered in your busy career as an art dealer with lots of restorations under your belt? There's a lot of nonsense talked in the art world by art lovers about things they don't quite understand. And one of the phrases I always hear a lot is, oh, that painting's been so overcleaned. When, um, as you say, they just don't quite understand. That's a Brian Sewell impersonation. It was very, very good. <laughs> well, no, it wasn't meant to be. So many people don't can't quite, you know, see get their head around that before and after. Because, as Larry said in the interview, it's always astounding how the removal of even the the, the slightest layer of discoloured old varnish can utterly transform a painting. And if listeners go and see the uh, the video of uh, cleaning the National Gallery of Rubens's landscape, Hetstein they will see that the varnish they take off there, which is probably only 60 or 70 years old, it nonetheless has an absolutely transformative effect on how the landscape in the background unfolds in that picture. And it looks absolutely extraordinary and wonderful and beautiful. And some people can find that a little bit alarming and frightening. But, but by and large, these days, uh, especially at the major museums, um, the conservators uh, are so careful and they know so well what they're doing and as Larry says, it's, it's often founded in, in, in science, which has advanced tremendously in this area, um, that there's very, very little risk of things uh, being damaged. Um, that said, um, I should make myself unpopular now with conservators because no, no single group of people in the history of art has done more to damage paintings than the people who are charged with looking after them. And by and large, that's conservators. Unfortunately, each generation of conservation uh, tends to think it has all the answers. 
in terms mm -hmm. of looking after pictures. For example, uh, in the Hermitage at the turn of the century in Russia, they had this determination that the best thing to do for all their paintings on panel was to transfer them onto canvas. So they were worried about, you know, panel wood warps and, and panels can flex and split. And they thought the best way to deal with this was to take away the panels and shave down the paintings very, very thin to the layer of paint and then transfer it onto a canvas. In many cases, it was an absolute disaster. And the, you know, the plane went straight through the, <laughs> the painting mm. surface. Many of the Hermitage's oldest pictures have lost all their, their texture and surface, and it's, it's a great tragedy. So mm. happily, I think after uh, five or 600 years, conservation has cracked it, and we can, we can safely move forward from this point. But the other interesting thing, I mean, I agree with you, there are these moments when, when restorers have done so much damage. I remember there's a, there a, a phase in Italian restoration. I think when I started out as an art critic, one of the first things I remember was, um, do you know, the great Cimabue crucifixion from um, Florence, from the Uffizi. Mm. It was ruined in the, in the floods at Florence. Um, and then loads of money was raised to restore it. And Olivetti, the typewriter company, sent it on a sort of tour of the world after the restoration to promote Olivetti typewriters, but also to, to put Italy and the Florence flood on the map and, and what have you. So it was basically a, a sort of commercial propagandist exercise. And this thing turned up at the Royal Academy. And they'd done that thing where they fill in all the missing bits with dots. Mm -hmm. Do you know, there's a, there was a, a fashion in restoration where you yes. put in a kind of pointillist infill. Yeah. Which can, I mean, it can kind of work if it's not too much of an area, but basically there was, I think there was two thirds of the Chimabui crucifix, you know, was, was, was missing. So two thirds of the picture became this splodge of Quantilis dots. And it was such a hopeless task, really, trying to enjoy the art in that circumstance. I mean, you couldn't just look at one corner of it and like it. The rest of the stuff was so impactful. And it was a terrible, I thought, a terrible way of going about restoration. But on the other hand, you know, one of the one of the very greatest things that's ever happened to me in my entire career as an art lover was in the late 80s when I was lucky enough to go up. They were restoring the Sistine Chapel. And I was lucky enough to go on the scaffold and get right up close to Michelangelo's Sistine ceiling. And to this day, oh, I, can't, I just cannot tell you how profound and moving an experience it was to be that close to him and to just to see how different it was up there to the way it looks from the ground that was the the really telling thing i did a film on it and i, and I describe it like a sort of football field of fresco rolling away from you because of course fresco isn't flat when you get up close to it it's very bulgy each bit of because you do it a bit today and each day has its own little sort of minor hill of paint and plaster to show you where it happened so it rolls away like um, like a bit of landscape into the distance. And of course, Michelangelo up there, because he knew he was being looked at from a distance, he was a completely different painter. He was so free. I mean, there were bits of painting up there that were like Matisse, one brushstroke to create a tree, a landscape, a face, um, big, bold lines around a day's bit of painting. I mean, I remember the, the thing I banged on about in the film um, that I made about it, Adam's penis, you know, the penis of Adam being created by God. Adam's little penis up there, it's one brushstroke. It's, it's literally like a piece of graffiti you might get in a, in a men's loo, you know, a little sort of twiddly brushstroke. And that joyful Michelangelo, that sort of wristy, happy, bright Michelangelo having fun up there, 
it was such a different story to the one we'd been told before about him sitting up there sweating, arguing with Pope Julius and how it was all tragic and ghastly and nothing about, about it except the suffering was ever, was ever mentioned. But the story of the art itself tells a different story. So that was absolutely wonderful. And then of course, when it was all finished, it came out looking bright and full of wonderful mannerist colorings, like opal fruit colors and everybody complained. Mm-hmm. You know, they said, oh no, it, you know, they've ruined it. It can't have been like that. Forgetting that, that we've had 500 years of candles and smoke blackening it and making mm. it basically impossible to see properly. So, so restoration is, a dramatic and wonderful event and and on that scale i mean it's so exciting yes if there's one thing that drives me in my art historical career it is about doing justice to an artist whether that's proving or disproving the attribution of a painting they may or may not have done or revealing it uh, through conservation back to uh, its original status so i'm I'm always in favor um, and and i think the cleaning of the sistine chapel was a great success by and large and uh, that said I have some of my most uh, exciting moments uh, sitting down in the conservation studio cleaning pictures um, has been when we've had to undo the work of previous restorers. A painting we had, for example, on a BBC series I make called Britain's Lost Masterpieces was a painting by Joseph Wright of Derby of a bridge just outside Rome, the Ponte Nomentano, which had been so, uh, I think in about over 90% of the whole canvas had been entirely repainted by uh, the restorer from hell, the local restorer from hell in Derby. This was a painting at Derby Museum. And they had just decided to to basically repaint a perfectly good uh, painting by Wright of Derby in their own style. And as a result, the, the painting had lost its attribution. So we were able to strip it back and prove again that it was by Wright of Derby. But uh, no matter how many times I've done that, and, and I've been lucky enough to sit in the conservation studio seeing hundreds of paintings be restored, I can never quite understand uh, how some <laughs> conservators have, have sat down in front of a masterpiece and thought, no, I know, I know, I know what's wrong with this painting. And off they go. It's extraordinary. <laughs> yeah, but they ca- it can be useful. Tate a few years ago did this restoration of a great big John Martin painting. It was one of those marvellous Martin pictures with loads of lava pouring out of volcanoes and thousands of crowds running around and the sky all thunderous and stormy. You know, an absolute gigantic, messy, loud kind of picture. Except... It had been ruined in a previous flood and that most of what you're looking at now was actually restoration. I mean, I went along a couple of times to the restoration and basically what they started with was an outer ring, you know, of of the painting and the entire middle of the picture pretty much disappeared. Um, They had a print of it, so they knew more or less what was supposed to go there. But most of what you see now was created by A. Anonymous at Tate Britain, you know. But I still thank them for that because without that, there was nothing to enjoy and there was nothing to look at. And I think rest, you know, all art needs to be understood as an attempt at storytelling, an attempt at conveying something. And there's a battle going on all the time, I think, between the whole notion of originality, which is to say, I must preserve this one flake of oil here because that's actually the flake of oil put down by Pontormo. And the other idea, which is that unless you fill in the gaps and really make it into a picture, it can't work as a work of art. There's Mm. nothing to look at. You know, originality doesn't tell you anything in itself. So it's a problematic area. But I've just found that in most instances, I've ended up on the side of the restorers in these things. And it always amuses me when professors of American art history pop up and complain about restorations. And they seem to be a sort of breed that does that quite a lot. There is one area where I must disagree with you from your interview and your view of Mm. conservatives, Gladys where you said that 
uh, conservators should be the arbiters, I think, of, of attribution and who painted what. And I, I must hesitate to disagree with you, uh, because although I have known many conservators who have very good eyes and who absolutely write about attributions, I've also known quite a few who are absolutely hopeless and get it wrong. I think, I think being so up close to maybe one or two paintings by a specific artist can, can give you a misplaced sense of confidence that you know everything about how they painted and you can then go and, mm. and determine a thumbs up or a thumbs down about, say, um, a Van Dyck or a, a Rembrandt. It doesn't really work like that. Not for one second was I suggesting that, that a conservator would be a better guide to an attribution than you as a, as a connoisseur, you know, Lindor <laughs> Grosvenor the connoisseur. Now, and I wasn't saying that, not for one minute. Get your tanks off, um, my lord. But, <laughs> but um, it is to do with the way that brushstrokes go down, the particular colour mixes, the way, the stylistic way that things are done, you know, how you actually paint the edge of a flower. All that kind of stuff. In my experience, most art world professionals don't actually know about that and don't really look at it properly. Um, I used to go around with my, my old friend Sean Greenhouse, the forger, um, around quite a lot of uh, galleries in London. And again, because he was a forger, it's a similar thing. If you're a forger, you also learn on an intimate level, I think, a particularly intimate level, how pictures put together. And he was really good on all that. You know, he, he would point out why some things look anomalous and that doesn't look right for that artist. And that colour, I, I just can't see him doing that or her doing that, he would say. And it's all to do with this intimate knowledge of a picture. It's the difference between, I mean, most of what I do involves looking at images either in a, in, in a newspaper or in a book or on television and trying to make my mind up about them. But if you're actually recreating the thing, really making it, really touching the paint, really feeling the brushstrokes, you do get a, an intimate knowledge of it. I'm not saying that every conservator in the world is going to be a match for Bendor Grosvenor, the connoisseur. I'm not saying that. Quite but I right. think that... The, They've got to be better than most people at it. They have to be, don't they? Yeah, no, you're, you're probably right. You're probably <laughs> right. But we should all, I would in, encourage everybody, whether a conservator or not, to spend as much time as Sean does and, and you through him, looking very closely at the canvas of paintings up close, because that's the best way to get to know art and artists. It is, and it's a lot of fun too. So yes, restoration, we're coming out pro-restoration big time on Waldy and Bendy's Adventures in Art. And we're also going to leave that little topic parked at the top of the road whilst we go to the next part of the podcast, which is the bit that historically, uh, Bendy and myself, we've both enjoyed it the most, I think. And that is where we get to choose anything we want in the whole world of art to hang on our walls during the lockdown. Now, we've gone through a lot of great pictures in the previous lockdowns, but I don't think we've gone through quite as many great pictures as we're going to go through in this lockdown. On the wall. Oh, Bendy, it's on the wall. I've missed it. Uh, my imaginary walls have been imaginatively empty for too long now. It's been a couple of weeks, hasn't it, since the last lockdown? And how have I survived? I don't know. But yes, here we are. We're going to choose some pictures that we would love to have hanging on our walls if we could. And, and as I said at the top of the program, um, you've gone for something that is almost indescribably obscure. I can't imagine um, how you happened upon it, um, except that I'm lying. And basically, you haven't gone for something incredibly obscure. You've gone for something else, haven't you, Bendor? Well, it struck me that in our on-the-wall selection so far, we, we really, we've been tinkering at the edges, Valdi. We've, we've chosen some interesting works. Uh, nothing too monumental. I think it's now time to go for the hard stuff. 
for the art historical crack cocaine, the meth, or whatever is the, the, the most terrible lethal drug you can ingest. So I'm choosing uh, Leonardo da Vinci's Mona Lisa, which is currently <laughs> hanging behind bulletproof glass, impossible for everyone to see in the Louvre. And I think I think really the Louvre needs to let it go just just for a bit during this lockdown, so that I. Bindle Grosvenor can get up close and personal to this painting, which which I've never been able to do. And there's another reason why I've chosen it, Wildy, and that is because this painting, uh, being the most famous work of art in the world, um, the Louvre has always resisted uh, restoring it and cleaning it. And as you'll know if you've seen it up close, it's it's quite difficult to get to grips with it because it's covered by many many layers of of old discoloured varnish and dirt. Mm. And a few years ago, um, the Prado in Madrid. Uh, unveiled a work which they said was was produced very early on, perhaps contemporaneously with the original Mona Lisa, uh, a copy, and you could see the most extraordinary colours that were originally mm. there beneath. I mean, the Louvre is petrified, and they're petrified of restoring it. I mean, it'll be such a dramatic and loaded moment should they ever um, find the cojones to do it, wouldn't it? And of course, the key thing about it is that it most people like it because it's so dark and difficult to see into. I mean, a big part of the mystery is you can't yes. really see it properly, isn't it? Yes, and you can come up with all sorts of conjectural guff about what may or may not be that particular mark behind her left earlobe. Um, but here's why I'm going to do the Louvre favour, Wildy, because uh, during the various lockdowns last year, when we had uh, lots of time on our hands, I decided to take the plunge with a little bit of fine art conservation myself. Now, for those who are not faint of heart, uh, there is a company online you could buy cleaning products, and I had a go. <laughs> so Asda or Tesco? <laughs> it's a company called Gainsborough Art Supplies, I think is the name. Um, you could buy all the sort of the acetones and the solvents and the this and the that's. Um, and I had to go, and it's it's the most fun you could possibly have. I had a painting which was not a great painting. It's I think it's from my cupboard of shame. I probably once upon a time thought it was by Rembrandt, and when it when it got here in the post, it 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 absolutely was not. So it's just been sitting there uh, covered by old varnish. And I had to go, and it's I'll, I'll, let's put a photo up of um, of this terrible cleaning test I did on. Bendel, hang on, hang on, Bendel, hang on. <laughs> are, are you telling me that you who have no experience or training of any sort in picture restoration. Um, How hard you, can it be? You went online or, or on the mail order or whatever, ordered up a bunch of fluids and, and cleaning materials and, and started to attack old art. Yeah, it comes with a manual. It comes with a 45-page manual that says how to restore a painting. So, you know, how hard can it be? I had to go. Are you, are you, are you telling me that Larry Keith, who, who we spoke to earlier in this He'll podcast, be offering me man, a job soon. The man who runs the <laughs> restoration studio at the National Gallery, that what he does is something that you can do by sending away mail order for cleaning fluids and, and attacking old art. Yeah, of course. I mean, Cool. I mean, you so, are setting such a bad example here, Bendor. I mean, this is there's children listening to this program, this podcast. You know that, don't you? Yeah. Do try this at home is my motto. <laughs> so I'll have a go on the Mona Lisa and everybody will thank me for it because it'll look brand spanking new. And um, if I get my retouching watercolours out, I can even have a go at putting her eyebrows back because um, that's one of the features that's missing, uh, which was revealed by the, the cleaned copy in the Prado. No, of course, Waldy, I am merely winding you up. Although I did have a go at uh, cleaning a painting, I realised that it's absolutely terrifying thing to do because one false whiff of the swab and you could uh, be in serious danger of doing some 
uh, permanent and lasting damage. So uh, I have stopped my cleaning career. The solvents are back in their bottle. Uh, they will never come out again. Uh, they absolutely stink, by the way. Um, you could mm. do yourself some lung damage, I think. And the painting, uh, this poor painting, will be there as a terrible reminder of why I should not be a restorer. Um, I won't touch the Mona Lisa. I'll just look at it for a bit. I'll try and work out if it is actually as good a painting as everybody says it is. I'm very happy to hear that you've given up restoration, Bendor. Uh, I mean, I'm just quivering at the thought of what you might have got up to had you carried on with that. Now, I'm, I'm sort of staying with the restoration theme, but only very, very, very tangentially, uh, because I want to talk about Thomas Moran, who actually has more to do with the stuff we were talking about in America and the Capitol building. But his picture, that I happened the great pleasure to, to film a few years ago, had only recently been restored. So I did see it in an absolutely pristine and gorgeous condition, glowing with colour. Um, and it's his fantastic view of the Grand Canyon. Um, which is this massive picture. It's the size of a wall. And the thing about it is it used to hang in the Capitol building. It was actually bought by the American government back in the 1870s, um, along with another uh, Thomas Moran, which was a view of the Yellowstone National Park in North America. And that was um, actually a painting that's often credited with starting the whole national park thing in America because people were so impressed by it. And alongside it is this fantastic view of the Grand Canyon, both of which used to hang, imagine this, in the actual Congress chamber in the Capitol. And what, what amazes me about them is that they show you, I mean, people always say about Moran, though, he was just trying to be like Turner. He was, he was a, basically a sort of European artist who went to America and tried to paint like a European artist and all that. And he wasn't really that inventive, which is true to an extent. But the thing is that what he could paint, the actual landscape of America, America itself, was so unlike anywhere else that art had been before. And that's true of, pretty much all of North America, but it's especially true mm. of the Grand Canyon. Mm. And when you look at Thomas Moran's Grand Canyon painting, which used to hang in the Capitol building, now hangs in the Smithsonian Institute, it's got its own gallery there. I mean, you cannot help but have the breath crushed out of you. It is, and you know, it's a huge painting, but it's just such an awesome view. And mm. if you've been to the Grand Canyon, you know, that's exciting. But Moran, who, who after all was from Bolton, for heaven's sake, you know, <laughs> this is a man who grew up surrounded by grubby satanic mills and, and puffing chimneys. And he gets to America and starts painting the West. And he steps over a ridge and he sees the Grand Canyon in front of him, mm. stretching for hundreds of miles, this extraordinary sight. And, you know, really, the, the, the results are just intoxicating. I mean, it's just a painting that could quite possibly make you faint in front of it <laughs> because it's like hell, really. It's bulging, it's smoking, and it's a great place, but it's also a place that's sort of loaded with drama and theatre, and you're never quite sure if there's smoke pouring out of the bottom of it. I mean, some people did actually call it the gates of hell, um, or, or that is just the mist from all the rain coming across the Colorado River, whatever. It, this massive ambiguity, this huge size of it, and these colours, these reds as the sun falls on the rocks, etc., they are just amazing. And I wanted to talk about it really because Let's face it, America's been getting a very bad press of late, deservedly so, uh, particularly you know, the last four years have been hell. It's very easy for all of us to rush around saying what a terrible place it is and what's happening to democracy and all of that. And, and, and also easy for us to denigrate all the art that's come out of uh, America because there's an awful lot of bad stuff. But let's not forget that there have been these great moments as well, and particularly in the early days, that combination of 
of artists who are really trying hard to have an impact than this amazing landscape, a landscape like nowhere else. You know, that chemistry did result in some remarkable images. And I think it's just going to be good to be reminded of that every now and then. Um, so for the next few weeks, I'm going to have Thomas Moran's view of the Grand Canyon hanging in my living room. Um, and it's going to excite me and it's going to remind me that America has had great moments as well as tragic ones. It's a feast of a painting, isn't it? And, and you're right, it does have that sense of someone standing there for the first time, eyes on stalks, never having seen a landscape uh, quite like it before, and, and uh, struggling, but succeeding at the same time to try and uh, fit it all in on one giant canvas. I didn't know that it actually used to hang in the capital itself. And, and perhaps it's, it's such a, uh, a turbulent and uh, fiery painting. Perhaps they should have it back as a reminder of, of what could go wrong if they don't uh, get back to their ways soon. Yeah, they should never have moved it. Um, it must have been, I just think it must have been so rousing to have that there. There's something about it that reminds you of how small you are as a human being and how, how big and important the world is and how big and important nature is. I mean, it might have just had a brilliant subcutaneous effect on the American psyche if it was right there as all these senators were were voting for some of the more ridiculous things we've heard about recently yes Kellyanne Conway should have it in her room I think that would have set her right anyway, that's my choice and I and and you're looking at the Mona Lisa so between us uh, I mean we're gonna have an awful lot of fun in the week ahead aren't we as we're looking at our imaginary pictures on the wall but uh, that's it from the podcast we've done restoration we've done American politics we've set the world right we've got a new section all about shock news so that's a pretty busy program and there's more to come in the weeks ahead but for now it's goodbye from me and cheerio from me Waldy and bendy, bendy.